This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Continuing our studies in the Gospel of Mark, we look today at Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth to an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. The Gospel accounts are written as a kind of narrative theology of Jesus Christ, so that in the events recorded, the Holy Spirit is teaching us both who Jesus is and why he has come. We have that in this section, these verses. Who is Jesus? He makes here the enormous claim to be the bridegroom, which is really an Old Testament designation of God. So he's claiming that he is God. Why has he come? There are at least three things in these verses. He's come as the bridegroom to give joy to his bride. He's come to deliver from the impossible religion of the Pharisees and their performance and works. And he's come and we have here the first mention of this in the Gospel of Mark, he's come to suffer, and that's in the word there, taken away. And that's really the summary of these verses. Jesus, the bridegroom, has come to bring joy to his bride by suffering in her place. In these verses, that's taught in one of these conflicts between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. This begins in verse 18 with an accusation. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him. We see here that the accusation doesn't come from the Pharisees themselves, but from their followers, and also from the disciples of John. And here we see them as troublemakers. They rally John's disciples to their side against Jesus, and they hide behind the question of their disciples. The accusation comes in the form of a question. Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Now, it may seem at first that they're just innocently asking for information, but there's no interest in an answer. In fact, what they're doing is justifying themselves after the last dispute. They really circle back to Jesus' feasting with publicans and sinners. He said that he came for sinners, not to call the righteous, but sinners. And now the question is, why does he feast with them? Shouldn't he be calling on them 
to fast, which is a sign of sorrow. And in these questions, they're really saying to Jesus, we're doing something and we do something that you don't do. Why don't you do it? That's their criticism. And it takes the form of uh, condescending self-righteousness. And to see that, we should understand the difference between the fasting of the Pharisees and the fasting of John and his disciples. The fasting of John's disciples was a reflection of the ministry and the message of John. Remember, he lived a lifestyle, really, of fasting as a Nazarite in the wilderness. He didn't give up just food, but every last luxury. And he did that as a sign of repentance, calling the people also to repentance and baptizing them with a baptism of repentance. And the fasting of his disciples was tied to the mood and the message of his ministry of repentance. The Pharisees, though, on the other hand, fasted for a show. It was a part of their religion of performance. Really, they were saying, look at what we do. And they saw their righteousness and their acceptance with God in their deeds, in their keeping of the stipulations of their own law. And fasting was one of the things that they had added to the Old Testament law. You remember the publican and the Pharisee in Jesus' parable of the two men who went up to pray. The Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. On Monday and Thursday, every week, the Pharisees fasted. And they made this a requirement. They paraded it. And they depended upon it before God. That's a very different kind of fasting than the fasting of John and his disciples. John's was an expression of an inward condition of the heart, of sorrow. There's just a part of their routine of performance religion. And very interestingly, if we look at the Old Testament law, it required fasting only on one day a year. That was the great day of atonement. And that fasting was a part of contemplating sin and showing repentance. And this idea that the practice itself, the idea of the Pharisees, that the practice itself was an indication of some higher degree of spirituality you don't find anywhere in Scripture. Yes, there were other times in the Scripture that people fasted, but not because of a requirement, but rather as an expression of a spiritual reality in the soul, and usually that was tied to some unusual and urgent matter, which was also a time of prayer. So fasting was an aspect of prayer in the Scripture. And in fasting, one would forego a privilege or a luxury so that they might devote themselves to a time of uninterrupted petition and beseeching of God. Fasting does not get you points with God. It's not something to get God's attention. It's not a lever that you add to your prayer, but it's an expression of the soul that is heaven-focused, that is feeling a deep need for God. You have an example of that when Jonah preached in Nineveh. The king of Nineveh put on sackcloth and ashes and declared a time of fasting and repentance and prayer. And that's because the situation was so very urgent. In 40 days, God would destroy his city. But all this is lost on the Pharisees. Their, their fasting was something that was paraded before men. 
They made it a requirement and a stipulation. And they saw it as an evidence of their righteousness before God. And looking at Jesus and his disciples, they said, you can't really be religious because you're partying, you're feasting. So how does Jesus answer this accusation? Well, there are two parts to his answer, and he uses three illustrations in his answer. We could call these illustrations parables, and they're very striking. In the first illustration, in verses 19 and 20, he uses a very common wedding analogy from Scripture. Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, he says, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. This, of course, is a a picture in the scripture of God's relationship to his bride, the church, or Christ's relationship as groom to his bride, the church. Jesus uses the illustration here to draw a contrast between his ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist. John's ministry was one of mourning and repentance, and so fasting was appropriate. But his ministry was one of joy, and so feasting is now appropriate. Wedding feasts in those days were week-long festivals at the groom's house, and they were a great time of delight and relaxation. You see that in the joy at the wedding in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2, and the large flagons of wine that was served. And Jesus is saying, now, while I'm here, is a time of joy. I'm the Savior, the Messiah. The Messiah and the Savior is among His people. The blind are given sight to see. The lame are walking. The lepers are healed. The good news of the gospel is being preached. There's forgiveness of sins and joy in that. Fasting is not appropriate. And again, that's because fasting was to be an expression of deep spiritual sorrow and pleading to God. And Jesus says that days of fasting will come for his disciples when the bridegroom is taken away. That taking away is a word used in the scripture for a violent arrest. And the reference is to Jesus' uh, crucifixion. In John chapter 16 and verse 20, he tells his disciples immediately before his arrest that he says, Ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And he's saying this, that during the time of his arrest and crucifixion, up till the time of his resurrection, those few days, there will be a time of great sorrow for his disciples. But then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will come and fill them with joy. And so Jesus' first illustration is saying very simply, that this is what's appropriate now, feasting. This is not a funeral, but a wedding. A new day has come. The Savior is here. It's a day of joy and light. And so, my disciples feast with me. And then he adds to that analogy two further clarifying illustrations in verses 21 and 22. And these two illustrations really teach that you can't mix the gospel of free grace with the Pharisees' legalism. That's the point here. 
two illustrations. At first, they, they seem somewhat like riddles, but really what they teach is quite simple and plain. In verse 21, No man also soweth a piece of new cloth to an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. He uses the illustration of a torn garment that is quite an old garment. It's been washed several times, so it's shrunk. The fabric has shrunk. And he says if you're going to put a patch on it when it needs to be repaired, you don't put on a patch of a new piece of fabric because then when you wash it again, the new will shrink. The old will not because it's already been shrunk. And it will pull and tear at the stitching and the the, the tear will be worse. You don't mix the old and the new. The illustration in verse 22 is similar. No man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. The bottles here are wineskins. And Jesus is saying you don't use old, stretched, brittle wineskins, probably made of some kind of leather, to put to put in new wine. You don't put new wine in those old wineskins because the new wine, as it ferments, will expand and will burst those old wineskins. You must put new wine into new wineskins. And that will stretch then during fermentation. Now what does Jesus have in mind here by this illustration of mixing the old and the new? Well, what he means by the new is easy enough. He's referring to his own coming in the gospel of repentance and grace for sinners. What does he mean by the old? Well, he doesn't mean by old the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, because we have to understand that the way of salvation in the Old Testament was also a way of grace and not works. By old here, he refers to the religion of the Pharisees and their works righteousness. It's similar to what he says in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you've heard that it's been said of them, by them of old time. And he means the Jewish teachers and rabbis, their traditions. And their teaching on works righteousness is really an old teaching, as old as the fall of man when Adam and Eve sowed fig leaves to try and hide themselves from God. And what Jesus is saying here is very profound. He's saying you can't mix a religion of works and grace in salvation. The gospel is not compatible with legalism. And when you try to mix the two, he's saying, you'll end up in ruin. There's an example of that later in the New Testament in the book of Galatians. Paul had preached to the Galatian churches. The Gentiles were converted. They believed. They were baptized. Their churches were established. And then along came Judaizers from Jerusalem telling them, you Gentile converts can't really be true Christians. You're not really spiritual enough until you begin to follow the all Jewish practices. And so they insisted on circumcision and the keeping of the Jewish feast days in the Gentile churches. And like the Pharisees they added to the requirements of the gospel. They mixed law and grace. And in Galatians, Paul says, you can't do that. And if you do that, you've lost 
the gospel, you've gone back to the weak and beggarly elements that cannot save. You're back into the works camp. And so in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, he says, If it's of grace, it's no more of works. If it's of works, it's no more of grace. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. And at the very beginning of his ministry, that's quite a remarkable point. His point and his argument against the Pharisees is not simply to show their hypocrisy, but it's to highlight that he is the only way to the Father, that we do not get to the Father, we do not come to God, we are not saved by works and Jesus, but by faith alone, in Christ alone. There's our salvation. And that's what the Reformed faith teaches. You don't come to Jesus with your arms loaded with your own good works and say, I come to Jesus with these and I want him to make up the difference. No, that's a religion of works righteousness. That's adding just a little of Jesus into our own works. The newness and the fulfillment of the coming of Jesus Christ is that He has accomplished all our salvation from beginning to end. Every part of it, for every one of those for whom he would lay down his life as a ransom. And he's making that point, not just over against the teaching of the Pharisees, but especially for his disciples and for us, because it's in our nature also to seek to gain favor with God by our works or to think of ourselves as better, superior, based on our achievement or what we've done. And that, of course, again goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Abel comes with the lamb, but Cain, his brother, comes with the fruit of his hands. And he says, Lord, look what I've brought to give to you. Look what I've done. Whereas Abel says, Lord, don't look at me, but look at the lamb. Look at the blood of the sacrifice. So that's the answer of Jesus here to the Pharisees and their accusation and their false teaching of performance religion. Let's close with a few points of application from these illustrations. First, in connection with the fasting of the Pharisees, Jesus highlights this, that there's nothing in a religious ceremony itself and that in fact it may be entirely inappropriate and even condemning to use religious ceremonies. That's true for those who insist on the practice of the Old Testament ceremonies and laws which are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ and so have no value in themselves. But it's also true of all our religious ceremonies and practice. If they are simply external, if our prayer, our church going, our sacraments, our Christian giving, our Sabbath observance are simply external shows of piety. There is no value to them. No. If you're going to fast, let there be mourning in your soul. If you're going to worship, let it be in spirit and truth. If you're going to give, don't do it out of duty. But remember, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. We're not saved by our ceremonies and our practice. And we gain nothing with God. There's no leverage in religious service. Second, our Christian faith ought to be characterized by joy, not a morose, fatalistic, dour, miserable sullenness. And that's true even as we grieve over our sin or are saddened by the consequences of the fall. 
Yes, there's a time and place for grief. And we grieve over the effects of sin in this world and our own guilt. But we grieve not as those who have no hope. When a loved one dies, we grieve, but not in despair. And that's because the bridegroom is here. And in the gospel, we are the bride. We have the Savior. And even our times of mourning are filled with joy and comfort and hope because we rest in the exalted rule of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel and the sovereignty of God. And we have hope in the midst of despair. This world is not our home. We're traveling. We're pilgrims. And our grief here in the earth reminds us of that. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Then also, there's something to be said here about legalism. The spiritual remedy for immorality is not legislation. You cannot legislate a changed heart. And I'm thinking now, not of society, but of the overreaction that can sometimes come in religious circles and in the church when we see something that we think just isn't right. The reaction can be, let's make a rule about that. And the point I'm making here is also important for parents. It's the heart that needs to be changed in our children, the heart that needs to be addressed in our children, not just behavior that needs to be changed. Yes, the law is there to show us our sin. But we must teach our children with us to look away from the law to Jesus Christ and say, we don't trust our works, we trust Christ who has paid the price for our sins. It's of grace. And that's a point we make not to minimize the importance of holiness, but to emphasize this, that our standing with God is only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And our holiness is always the fruit of our salvation, not the root and the cause of our salvation. And so I finish this message with a question and a call. The question is this, what of your own doing and works are you trusting? And you know how you tell that you're trusting it? You can tell when you say this, why am I doing this and they're not doing it? And then the call is simply this, sinner, look away from yourself, look away from your performance and trust not in yourself and what you have done, but look to Jesus Christ and trust in him alone. He is the one who has provided what Hebrews chapter 10 calls the new and living way into the presence of God. And so we come to God by him. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.